0: Hello, this is WHCL 88.7 WHCL FM from Clinton, New York, and this is Finding Dodo. Um, There you go. Uh, So welcome to Finding Dodo. Today's topic was supposed to cover, I said last week that I would do the Balibo 5, which were or are a group of five courageous journalists from australia who covered the indian who covered indonesia's move to occupy the small island of east timor in 1975 but then i was constructing the pot the episode and the context is really important here because What makes these killings, like, they're obviously horrific, equally horrific, but what makes it especially so unjust, I feel like, is the, you could say, the train wreck of corporate interest-led decisions, also known as U.S. foreign policy, and how the western powers were involved not directly i mean you could say directly in these killings i suppose well not directly but like definitely a huge cause an integral cause to what led to these deaths of courageous journalists so um i'm going to go more in depth with what happened to east timor the the country the country the political context as a whole and um yeah and i was adjusting the mic and um yeah going through they they had a quarter century occupation under indonesian rule and how the yeah like i said a lot of powerful countries were a part of that so uh first i'm going to go into a little bit about just the country of East Timor in general. I think it's so sad that most Americans, including myself before I watched the documentary Manufacturing Consent, um, it was never ever brought up in history books or anything like that. Uh, I think it's really sad that most Americans have no clue what or where East Timor is and we owe it to the Timorese people. I feel like the decency of knowing who they are and their history, especially since we had such a huge hand in it in the 20th century um so East Timor also known as Timor-Lest is um comprised of half of the island of Timor as well as two other little islands the other half of the island of Timor is Indonesian land and there's also like a weird little chunk of land on the I think it was the north of the northwestern part um but yeah that's most of their land is is this half island of Timor their capital is Dili I think I'm saying, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, and the size of the country is a little larger than Connecticut, so it's a one of those really small island nations, and it's, I do not know about this, but it's actually very diverse, and the largest plurality spoken language is Tetun Prasa, but that language is still only spoken by 30% of the population, um, and yeah, it was like the next largest, most commonly spoken language was like 20-something percent, so and then it was, like, 17%, so a lot of different languages and ethnicities, Uh, but 97%, a whopping 97% of East East Timorese people are Roman Catholic, which I didn't know, that's very, um, like, I'm not conservative, but, like, you know, it's this island, and I was just thinking, like, yeah, that's, you know, (laughs) I mean, just thinking of, like, what you think of as, like, um, the kind of people that you feel like Americans would be, like, especially conservative Americans would feel sympathetic to, it's, like, kind of surprising, but I guess also not that surprising. Um, yeah, anyways, uh, it's, it's a pretty impoverished country, the literacy is at 67%, and almost 40% of children under five years old are underweight. Also, the total unemployment is at 21% right now, and the life expectancy is one of the worst in the world. It was like 150 or 60 or something like that. And also, I was looking at the life expectancy rate, um, like ranking. Okay, so all of this is from the CIA factbook because I feel like people really trust that resource. But anyways, the U.S. is actually 45th. 45th in the world on life expectancy like that's so bad and and i was just looking at the countries that were above us and people are always getting on greece because they don't pay back their debts but they had they have a higher life expectancy than us so you could say like in some ways they're doing better than us and i was just like oh my god this is like the issue with our health care and <laughs> all that kind of stuff also so east Timor the environment is not doing too well they're using slash and burn techniques which is like Oh my god, it's like so, it's so, like, it's not, it's like the epitome of not long-term thinking agricultural practices. It's like, from what I know, it's like, you have a forest, and then you just slash it, and then you burn it to the ground, and then that provides a lot of fertile soil, because it's like the ashes of a forest, and then you use it for a couple years, and then you move on, so, um, yeah, not for long-term agriculture like soil health and use and there's a lot of loss of biodiversity going on right now so a little bit about the history uh, this was so sad to read um, so first it was settled by the per- Portuguese and then it was settled by the Spanish in the 1500s and then the Dutch came in 1613 And occupied it and then the British came in the 1800s and they occupied it and you'd think like the East Timorese would have had their fair share of misfortunes and then the Japanese came and occupied East Timor during during World War two which I didn't know about and then after World War two because Japan lost it was returned to the Portuguese (laughs) like no that's not returning it you should return it to the people Um, but yeah it was not very a progressive climate back then um and then until the uh the timorese people fought back and gained their independence back um they had to fight for their own rights no one handed it to them and they finally got back their independence after Wait, okay, what is this now like 400 years later like oh my goodness um in november of 1975 that was november of 1975 and then in december of 1975 literally a month later they were then invaded by indonesia and in 1976 indonesia declared it their own so this is just centuries upon centuries of systematic oppression by european and then one east asian country um yeah it's a oh there's a sound it's like a police car or something um yeah. But anyways, uh yeah, centuries upon centuries of oppression and uh it's like you would think that they so they finally got their independence. I'm not sure okay, I don't wanna skip around too much, but they finally got their independence in like I think two thousand one or two thousand two. I think there was a referendum in two thousand one then they got it in two thousand two and like And then you just, like, read about how all these same countries then went around and backstabbed this country to exploit their resources. So it's not over at all today. Even after centuries of occupation, all these so-called democracy-loving or human rights-loving countries are not supporting this country that they've really wronged. Um, Even though, like, you have a chance to make reparations now, it's not... It is too late, but it's at the same time better late than never. Um and it's still really not being done. And and like I said, this stuff, I was reading like the history on uh Encyclopaedia Britannica and those kind of mainstream sites and they don't mention once about um even oh my god, yeah, it's not even just in East Timor. They don't talk about the US like the US role in the Indonesian occupation, but in the Indonesian occupation page of Encyclopedia Britannica, they don't mention the United States or any other like foreign power not once when we were supplying 90% of the weapons. Okay, I'm going to talk about that later though. I don't want to go into that now. Um Okay, well, yeah. So, I'm going I'm going to talk about now about the US involvement or more like it is like the developed countries in general involvement, but mostly the US. Um so it's been, yeah, so the Western relationship to Saharto, so he's an important player. He was the, I guess he was like, I think he was technically called the president, but he was a dictator. Um, he was the head of Indonesia um, for a really long time, for decades and decades, and we had a really great relationship with him, and he was actually named the most corrupt leader in modern history by Transparency International. What a lovely thing to be known for! What a lovely thing for your friends to be, um, and because he embezzled thirty five billion dollars, like I was looking at this figure, like, is that million? No, it's billion. Thirty five billion dollars, that's just so much corru- like so much corruption. Like, what do you need thirty five billion dollars for? Like, I don't even, I can't even begin to, you know, why do you need that much money? And he, well, he was using it to like pay off everyone around him, but still. And so, uh, Indonesia was a huge oil producing, and really importantly, they were anti-communist, which seems like that's the single litmus test for U.S. foreign policy, not human rights, not democracy, but how far you are from communism, or like even socialism, I guess. Anyway, so we were buddy-buddy with this guy, and um, Indonesia was dubbed a, quote, paradise for investors, and um, there was actually... Uh, the documentary is called rulers of the new world and they, they were in the documentary they were talking about in 1967 there was a time life corporation um like convention sort of oh it was called i have it here the indonesia investment conference and it was a three-day conference and day one the indonesian dele- delegates gave their spiel and were saying like this is, you know, what we want. And then day two and three, they would all just divide up into different rooms by industry. And then the industry conglomerate people would just go around and say what they wanted, what the conditions they wanted for terms of entry for their industry to or corporation to go into Indonesia. Um, and then, like, the Indonesian people were just taking notes, the Indonesian people, I mean, like, Suharto's henchmen, <laughs> I mean, he's not, like, a, he was a, an official politician, um, he's not a mob leader, I guess, but, um, his, his, like, underlings, <laughs> I can't think of, like, a good word for, because um, <laughs> it really is kind of, like, um, mob sort of dictatorship, um, yeah, but, so, and, and the people that were represented here were like gm rockefellers Lehman brothers american express a lot of oil companies and they all just came to this conference and there was a quote uh from a guy jeffrey winters from northwestern University's university where he was saying i've never heard of a situation like this for any country where global capital essentially holds a meeting with state and state and hammers at state being being indonesia and hammers out the conditions of their own entry into the country they basically designed the legal infrastructure for investment in indonesia so this was really great for investors this was absolutely fantastic it was a paradise um but not for the indonesian people and while suharto took five billion dollars yearly from the u.s and also a consortium of western countries in japan uh there's a oh, I think theres must be a fire emergency. I hope everyone's safe um okay, it's passed um so <clears throat> yeah, so while Suharto, he was taking five billion dollars a year from the u s and also a consortium of Western countries in Japan were also giving a yearly other four billion dollars. Um, and his meanwhile his people were suffering under a really brutal dictatorship uh, constricted freedoms human rights and he killed half a million people in his anti-communist purges Um, and a lot of students were killed as well and the CIA was calling it I think it was the CIA one of the worst anti-communist purges uh, which is interesting considering what the CIA CIA did in the 20th century but um even they were saying like this is kind of getting out of hand anyways so um indonesia has shifted to democracy since then more so but um he oh my god it's like so infuriating to like give how he finished his life up but i mean i had to read this so i'm gonna tell tell it to you guys also so he identified himself as mentally unfit to stand for trial for his embezzlements and so he was never charged and then when he died a nice long like old i think he died of sickness actually but like it wasn't like anyone was poisoning him um he was given a nice formal state funeral with full honors like military honors oh yeah because he was like a military he was a, he was a military guy before ah classic military coup. Um, and he was lauded by the sitting president who said like, oh, he's like Indonesia's uh, best son or something like that. So he he died, he lived a nice, like corrupt life and then retired he so he i mean i could go into that might be a whole other episode is like how he had to step down from power but he lived a nice life after he stepped down from power and then he was still applauded in death so this guy is just really mm, mm. um but yeah basically this mascot. so the reason why i went i went really in depth into suharto is because he was Obviously really good for us corporate interests and we didn't care about his human rights record And so this mass-scale murderer guy was like our best friend in the region our geopolitical Ally you could say and we would support Suharto in whatever he did um, As long as he kept indonesia fine and dandy for our corporate interests, and he decided to go ahead with a genocide and I mean, Mark, this has been labeled clearly as a genocide, I think, in the Yale Studies program as well, and just from the number of people that died, I mean, it's it's no secret, really, even though it kind of is, because it's not really widely discussed. But, um, yeah, so Indonesia invaded East Timor. Um, oh, yeah, in case it wasn't clear, the, the genocide was the East Timorese genocide. And, um, yeah, eventually, so... Oh, did I say? So I I think I'm going to make this a Oh, I think I did say this already, but I'm going to make this a two-part. Um I'm going to talk about the context in this in this week and then I'm going to talk about like the actual Balibo 5 next week. Um yeah, okay. I didn't say that at the beginning of the show. But anyways, yeah, today is like more about the occupation and the political context of um the East Timorese genocide. So, they invaded East Timor because East Timor had a lot of gas and oil what other reason would they invade and then um and yeah again like this country East Timor had just undergone like over 400 like yeah that's a long time 400 years of um of oppression and they'd finally fought for their independence and they're like I don't know what they were thinking but like they could have been thinking like oh this world is becoming more progressive like imperialism is less overtly in fashion so you know like we got our independence yes good for us and then a month later like not even a year like just a month later they were invaded by their neighboring country backed by the world's global superpower the united states and so The U.S. not only stood by and actively aided this genocide, um, yeah, and I, here I wrote down, like, one of my favorite quotes by Noam Chomsky, which is, everyone's worried about stopping terrorism, well, there's a really easy way to do that, stop participating in it, and, yeah, like, we i remember reading in like samantha power she wrote a really famous book uh i think it was problem from hell and and it's like she de- she dedicates one line to east timor and says like oh the u.s turned a blind eye no the u.s did not turn a blind eye so let me read the facts right here 90 percent of the invasion was done with u.s equipment 90 percent of the weapons the national security council council complied oh my god the national security council compiled a report with a quote weapon by weapon description on how our arms were being illegally used by the indonesian military um the weapon sales were we sold a weapon sales worth one billion dollars since the invasion um congress barred tried to bar u.s training of the killers and torturers um but the clinton administration found ways to evade those laws meaning like they were training um, those kinds of people and Washington, quote, discounted or suppressed credible reports of ongoing Indonesian atrocities from 1975 to 1983, turned a blind eye to the extensive use of U.S. weapons in East Timor, and through 1999 viewed the crisis in East Timor primarily as a distraction from its priority of maintaining close relations with the Indonesian government and armed forces. And where are these facts from? They are not from, like, this random banana source they are from the national archives so you can look this up yourself in the national archives and um yeah especially about like the 90s when so clinton was eventually the one that kind of called it off but um for the they were really only viewed it as like there was one like foreign policy analyst that was quoted in the washington post i'm not sure if he meant said this like ironically but he was like um oh east timor is just a bump a little bump in the road to our relations with Indonesia, and it's like, hmm, 200,000 lives, is that really a little bump in the road, like, that kind of mass-scale murder? But anyways, um, so dismissed support oh yeah and and so there were were there were reports to the u.s embassy in jakarta in indonesia that were like this is really horrible stuff going on in east timor and they just kind of dismissed it um so so there was plenty of there were plenty of chances to stop this um and kind of take responsibility for it but we didn't and and so I just want to go through, oh wow, this is a really long list, I didn't realize how long this list was, it's a list of people, famous people that were involved, number one, Henry Kissinger, um, so he was very heavily involved in this, he knew everything that was going on, and when the staff were kind of alerting him, like, oh, this stuff is going on in East Timor, he quote said, I'm assuming you're going to keep your mouth shut on this subject, Mmm anyways next person defense secretary Cohen quote he said he said regarding like oh Indonesia's like illegally trying to annex this poor island nation and he said quote we don't want to take that responsibility away from them like uh, excuse me what responsibility like what about the right to self determination of this East Timorese people? Like, that's not, they are not the responsibility of Indonesia, even though Indonesia is trying to make it that way. um Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. And then, US Ambassador David Newsom uh, requested that Indonesia, quote, take no military action. This is a quote from, I think, the National Archive resource that I was telling you guys about, quote, take no military action until well after the president's departure from Jakarta. And so President Ford and Kissinger have a meeting with Suharto on the 6th, and then they leave that night, I think, late at night. Their plane takes off, and December December 7th, the invasion begins. So he really took that as like, oh, (laughs) as soon as they leave, take no military action until the president's departure. It's like, oh, I don't see the plane in the horizon anymore. Okay, green light, let's go invade. Um, Yeah, interesting. Um... And he said, oh, yeah, he was, oh, wait, this is, um, common, oh, I, I copy and pasted the quote under the wrong person. So the next person is, as you might have guessed, President Ford, and so he toasted, um, I'll just read the toast, quote, our relationship involves, this is to Saharto. quote, our relationship involves a common concern for the right of every nation to pursue its destiny, ha ha ha, on its own independent and sovereign course on behalf of mrs ford and myself i raise my glass and propose a toast um yeah so he was toasting Saharto literally the eve before the massacre happened and next person president carter um, and he I'm not sure how directly he involved he was so 1977, the Carter at administra- uh, Carter administration blocked access to documents that said that at the I think it was like a meeting between President Ford that they quote went out of their way on the eve of the GOI move on Timor to assure Suharto of an understanding attitude by the u.s. So this was Carter covering up for for excuse me, this was Carter covering up for Ford, uh, because, you know, presidents gotta watch out for each other when they all have similar foreign policy, and then Clinton is the next person, so the Clinton administration, uh, had a, quote, desire to, um, oh yeah, to not let East Timor further damage ties between the two nations after the 1999 destruction and massacres, um, and, and he kind of said stuff about, like, oh, it's not good, what's going on, like, we've ignored it, which is not true, we were supporting it, that's different, but he was, like, kind of saying, oh, East Timor, mm, the situation isn't good, but, um, yeah, he was really hard-pressed to put an end to it, he really, that was, like, you can tell they really only cared about their relationship with, um, the paradise, investor paradise of Indonesia, And the last person, I saved this person for last, not because they're famous, but because um, the quote is just really interesting, Um, the guy's name is Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and he was the UN ambassador under Ford, and he openly bragged in his book, um, A Dangerous Place, about how he carried out, with quote, no inconsiderable success, the US foreign policy to render the UN quote utterly ineffective on East Timor um and then he says like the U.S. United States wished things to turn out as they did wow so I'm gonna talk about how bad the genocide was like that's really kind of frightening that you can say that in your book um that you wished a genocide to be carried out I'm not really sure what his thought process was on that and saying that you're proud to have rendered the UN ineffective like the UN trying to do its job to prevent genocide haha I really got those guys um well I feel like I'm like acting like the most kind of like (laughs) mad or upset in this of any podcast episodes because I don't know I guess it's partly because these people are still lauded as heroes like you know, these presidents are still like, oh, those were our U.S. presidents, um, our dignified U.S. presidents, and it's like, you know, all these dirty sick secrets are swept under the rug, but anyways, um, okay, so my next section is, I'm gonna try to convince you guys that the East Timor genocide was really, really bad, um, and that's not really a hard thing to do, but basically, like, it, it's just, I want to show, like, it was this bad, and I just don't understand how people thought that corporate interests could justify this sort of stuff happening, and people in power could just go to bed at night knowing this kind of stuff was happening. But, um, so the East Timor genocide, we don't learn much about it, but that does not mean it wasn't horrific. So, you learn about the Rwandan genocide and the Bosnian genocide, and those were really horrific, but, um, East Timor deserves to be counted among like so in in terms of i bring up those two examples because i just had a class on those two genocides and we didn't learn about east timor um but the east timorese genocide was actually the largest slaughter relative to population since the holocaust and that's not saying that the number of people that died in east timor was the same as the number of people that were killed in the holocaust the jews that were killed in the holocaust but the um the proportion was was really high, like the highest since the Holocaust. And so the death toll was around 200,000 people. Um, that's like, and then some are even higher and, um, uh, among a population of around 800,000 to 900,000. And some estimates range as high as one third of the total population was killed. Like, I mean, just think of that. Like you look around and every third person is just gone like killed and then even more people were displaced and so in relation to that in Rwanda around 10% of the total population was killed although it's like really crazy because that genocide happened in like 100 days I think it was super quick and horrific and the Bosnian genocide killed around 2.5% of the population so what I'm trying to say is like these were horrific things that happened throughout history but why isn't East Timor brought up when it was such a sizable portion of the population and such a just based on the the number of people that killed period not just proportion it was so high um it's clearly not clearly like you would think it seems like there's some kind of bias in what's represented going on here. Um yeah, and you can learn more about that through manufacturing consent. That's like there's a documentary and there's also a really long book that I never finished reading because it was so long. I I really should finish reading that book. But um yeah, so like there's a lot of media it, it it's a good example of American or US media bias. Which is why the Balibo Five is so interesting, because like they were the journalists that were trying to overcome that and trying to shed light on the bad things that their own country were, that that their own country was doing, which is really like the ultimate form of patriotism, and. Um yeah so huge death toll displaced even more people burned down 80% of the country's infrastructure which again like considering it was just under 400 years of colonization like the little that they had they were just destroying and yeah I really just mm, can't believe you go through 4 centuries and then you get one month of independence and then you're back under this horrible horrible Saharto guy dictatorship and then so the last thing I kind of want to talk about today, um, yeah, I really am not going to get to the Balbo 5, that will be next week, it is though kind of like prepping for the Balbo 5, a more, not milder story, it's only milder because these people made it out alive, whereas the Balbo 5 did not make it out alive, but um, some of my journalist heroes, uh, Amy Goodman and Alan Nairn, although I really wish Democracy Now! would cover more stuff about animal agriculture this is just a really side side note but um yeah they started and i'm like this is really important for if you care about climate change why aren't you talking about animal agriculture they kind of started but i'm hoping to see more of that but anyways other than that i love democracy now and um and so this was and i mean love is almost just like i really highly respect the work that they do especially regarding east timor and um they were there when okay okay I'm gonna go back to the beginning so they were covering East Timor because there was supposed to be a UN delegation that was gonna come to East Timor and kind of check things out and obviously Indonesia didn't like that because they were oppressing the people there so then the trip was called off um and then tensions heightened in Dili which was Wait, I wrote Dili, and then here I wrote Dill. What is the capital? East Timor Capital. I'm gonna look it up right now. Um... Capital... Dili. Okay, I just wrote it wrong on the second time then. Okay. (laughs) Oh my god, I was like, I wanted to make sure I get the name right. Um, so the tensions were heightened in Dili at that point because they had prepared so they were like this was their big hope that the UN delegation was going to come and see how bad things were and something was going to change um but then it got called off and this got people this got people really upset obviously and it culminated in a conflict where actually there was a clash between um it was kind of a three-way between um the independence activists and then the people that were like pro-inclusion into the indonesian like indonesia i think as a last resort um because you know it's like if you can't um fight him then join him sort of or like they have had a better chance of getting more rights as a part of Indonesia I don't know so there was like that kind of faction on East Timor and then there was the Indonesian military and so the three were just kind of had this clash at I think it was at a church too and then an independence activist Sebastio Gomez was shot he was dragged out and shot by the Indonesian troops and this was this sparked the largest sort of like uprising that happened during the occupation but also we don't really know that because they didn't allow media on there and we really only know about this because Amy Goodman and Alan Nairn were brave enough to they were they went to East Timor to cover the UN envoy which didn't go but they stayed there anyways to cover the situation and um oh yeah also I didn't know this it was Amy Goodman Alan Nairn and a British cameraman named Christopher Wenner And he, yeah, he documented it, but from the story, it's like, it sounds like only Goodman and Nairn were at the Santa Cruz massacre, but anyways, I just wanted to throw out his his name so he gets recognition, um, on this important, important show, I'm sure he needs recognition on Dodo History, (laughs) um, but yeah, and, and so they stayed, and they were gonna cover the, um, the the massacre, they didn't know it was going to be a massacre, they were going to cover this, the occupation, and this happened, so, yeah, oh, by the way, this happened in 1991, so this is 16 years into the occupation, um, so a lot of, probably, like, resentment, frustration is piling up, has been piling up, not to mention, like, I, again, I mentioning again the 400 years before that of occupation as well and um so there was a memorial service for the guy who got shot gomez and this was the moment where everyone had been just so fed up and they were it was a funeral procession but then people just came out of their houses and joined the funeral procession and they had prepared this really broke my heart like they had prepared banners and flags for the UN delegation and i just like it breaks my heart because i feel like the UN delegation would have come and seen them and still not done anything like it's really like they they were trapped like they were prisoners under this occupation on on a freaking island and they just like had no this was their one hope and they had prepared like flags and stuff for this and then the world abandoned them yet again and didn't even send the UN delegation thank goodness some brave journalists were here, but anyways, like, they had, they brought out the banners and flags that they had prepared for the UN delegation that never came, and that flag saying, like, proclaiming their independence and their dignity, and what happened, so I, this kind of, it's kind of long, but I'm going to read what Amy Goodman said about the experience, because it's, it's like, so, it's best said in her own words, so she said, quote, <clears throat> we knew the Indonesian military had committed many massacres in the past, but never in front of Western journalists. Alan suggested we walk to the front of the crowd, hoping that our presence could head off what looked like an impending attack. I put on my headphones, took out my tape recorder, um, and held up my microphone like a flag. Alan put his camera above his head and we stood in the middle of the road, about fifteen yards in front of the crowd. So this again, this is like the funeral procession slash uh protest people uh, activists that were protesting like the just in general the occupation and their independence and by visibly showing the tools of our trade we hope to alert the troops that this time they were being watched uh yeah as you can see that did not deter them um a hush fell over the Timorese. those in the back could run but the thousands of people in front were trapped by the cemetery walls that lined both sides of the road the main sound was the rhythmic th- rhythmic thump of boots hitting the road as the troops marched in unison towards the people. Children whispered behind us. Oh my god there were children here. <clears throat> then without any warning or provocation the soldiers rounded the corner swept past us so they had been like standing in front of the people to like protect them uh, raised their U.S. made weapons and opened fire people were ripped apart the troops just kept shooting moving their guns from left to right killing anyone still standing a group of soldiers surrounded me they started to shake my microphone in my face as if to say we don't want that when they slammed me to the ground with their rifle butts and started to kick me with their boots i gasped for breath alan threw himself on top of me to protect me from further injury The soldiers wielded their M16s like baseball bats. They slammed them against Alan's head until they fractured his skull. For a moment, Alan lay in the the road in spasm, covered in blood, unable to move. Suddenly, about a dozen soldiers lined up like a firing squad. They put their guns to our heads and screamed, politique, politique. They were accusing us of being involved in politics, uh, a crime clearly punishable by death they also demanded australia australia we understood what was at stake with this question in october so okay this is how it's like connected to the Balibo five in october 1975 indonesian soldiers had executed five australian-based television journalists in an attempt to cover up a military incursion leading up to the december 7th 1975 invasion of east timor on december eight, so i'm not going to go into that because that, that's what i'm talking about next week um but yeah exact almost exactly 16 years later after that incident on of australian journalists happened as alan and i lay on the ground surrounded by indonesian soldiers we shouted no we're from america they had stripped us of our possessions but i still had my passport i threw it at them when i regained my breath i said again we're from america america finally the soldiers lowered their guns from our heads we think it was because we were from the same countries their weapons were from uh, they would have had to pay a price for killing us that they never had to pay for killing Timorese. At least 271 Timorese died that day in what became known as the Santa Cruz Massacre. Indonesian troops went on killing for, for, for days. It was not even one of the larger massacres in East Timor, and it wouldn't be the last. It was simply the first to be witnessed by outsiders. And this... Okay, end quote. So... <clears throat> That was sorry, that was long, but um you can it's just like so moving because it's so heroic of her, like putting your life at stake for people it's it's so poignant, like because it's the people that your country have helped to oppress, but then you're there trying to give them a voice, and um <clears throat> yeah, um, that will always win my unending respect for the courage of. Amy Goodman and Alan Nair and like they're really like the ones going out there real investigative journalism and um this it just shows like the danger that everyone was in like and and oh oh, I I remember I was gonna say is like this really caught everyone's attention because they actually had footage of just like the Indonesian soldiers just shooting indiscriminately at people at a funeral procession and everyone started to kind of like pay attention because this because of this santa cruz massacre and this was in 1991 they wouldn't gain their independence for another 10 years or so but i i guess like it's it might have been like the beginning of the end um so yeah but what she was kind of referencing was like those australian journalists and because so like as you might have guessed australia is really close to east timor compared to the other western countries and so the act like there was a lot there's actually like a a kind of like a a a group a solidified solidified group of people in australia that are australian that are really committed to this issue of east timor and um yeah, there's, and there's some that are still alive today, but, yeah, next week I'll be talking about the five that decided to take on what their country was doing, and, um, and got killed for it, um, really just, like, gave their lives up, A, for journalism, B, for human rights, and, like, I don't know, C, just, like, for doing, standing up for the vulnerable people of the world and trying to give them a voice so yeah next week is really going to be about very heroic people um I don't feel weird saying that like I don't want to you know oh these people were perfect like have sort of great man history and George Washington type of history but I think these people aren't given enough credit so I don't think I'm doing a disservice by like you know showing them overtly saying that they are really great people um, I don't know, actually, I haven't done too much research, so maybe I'll find out something, but anyways, like, the work they did in East Timor was definitely very heroic, so, um, yeah, that's it for this week, thanks for listening to this, all this really depressing stuff about East Timor and U.S. foreign policy, um, but yeah, tune in next week to hear more and learn more about, um, (laughs) to learn more about this issue.